cliffcentral.com. Please note that the views expressed and the advice provided in this show are for general advice and entertainment purposes only. Nothing stated should be treated as a substitute for your own independent legal advice based on your own specific facts and objectives. Therefore, the presenter and cliffcentral.com accept no liability of any nature whatsoever, either expressed or implied. Law, like you've never heard it before. The Laws of Life with Gary Hertzberg on CliffCentral.com. I'm Gary Hertzberg, and this is The Laws of Life on Cliff Central from Johannesburg, South Africa. Uh, Lionel is away today. Joining me today is Benji Scheinberg, our researcher, and next to me, Palessa, our controller. Welcome, Palessa. Cool. Today we host two men who spent 14 excruciating years in prison for a murder they never committed. Tragic, absolutely. Welcome Samuel Sampikanya and Victor Moyo. Welcome, guys. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Good. Uh, You'll hear that uh, this is a, a real heartbreaking story of two men who were torn from their families at a very young age for something they never did. Joining them in studio today is Carolyn Raffaele of the Vitz Justice Project and human rights lawyer Egan Oswald. Now, the law on this particular show is of extreme importance, and we're going to be discussing whether an accused can implicate another accused. Um, and this particular issue, we'll go into more detail, but this issue was decided by the Constitutional Court now, very recently, a few weeks ago. And uh, we're going to be discussing with Egan what we term extra curial statements. And we'll go into detail on that one. Uh, so uh, just to give you our, our contact details, uh, my Facebook page, The Laws of Life with uh, Gary Hertzberg. Have a look at it and give us a like if you do, please. And then our Twitter handle is Hertzlaw, at Hertzlaw, H-E-R-T-Z-L-A-W. And then our email address, if you want to write in to us, it's uh, law, L-A-W, at cliffcentral.com. Let me introduce our other two guests today. Firstly, uh, ladies first, Carolyn Raffaele. What Whatever I say about Carolyn and Egan is just not enough. Let me tell you about Carolyn. She's a senior journalist at Vitz Justice Project. She has a psychology and drama degree, a master's in city and regional planning. She has stints as associate editor of Financial Mail, features editor of Finance Week, and Johannesburg bureau chief of Cosmopolitan Magazine. I think she's blushing here. She's also been communication manager of Conservation Corporation Africa right now. And that's why Carolyn's in studio. She's obsessed with righting wrongs in South Africa's justice system by drawing attention to the mostly ignored plight of people behind bars. We really need someone like this. And uh, you'll hear why as we go along. Carolyn was named Print Legal Journalist of the Year by Weber Wenzel in 2011, run-up in 2012 and 2015. She was Standard Bank Journalism Award finalist 2013-14. I can go on and on, but uh, I'd keep you for the rest of the day. Welcome to you, Carolyn. <laughs> You're hiding behind uh, your hand. Thank you. Lovely to have you here. Thank you very much. Egan Oswald, he's been voted Human Rights Lawyer of the Year by the Cape Law Society. 
Uh, he's the first South African lawyer to have prosecuted South Africa with human rights violations and torture at the United Nations. And uh, he, uh, that was in Geneva. He won that case. Bradley McCullum versus South Africa is the name of the case, in case you want to Google it. Welcome, Egan Oswald. Thank you, Kerry, and listeners. Now to our guests, Sumpy and Victor. Welcome, guys, again. In 2003, a policeman, Warrant Officer Makuna, was shot at his home, and it was alleged that you were part of a group of men who acted with common purpose to shoot Mr. Makuna and with a plan to steal his bucky. Mr. Makuna later died in hospital. You were arrested and you were charged with the offense of murder, robbery, and, and many other charges. They threw the book at you. You appeared in the Northwest High Court in South Africa, and you were sentenced to life in prison. Now, the day when you got that sentence, you were standing in court, heads bowed, I guess. You looked at the judge. He said, you're going to prison for a lifetime. You knew you were both innocent. How did you feel, Sampi, when you heard that? Ish. It was painful when I hear uh, the judge tell me that I'm guilty. Well, I know that I didn't commit the matter. But I've told myself that no, this is not the end of the, uh, my life. I will fight up until the truth come out. Mm. Then, you, What age were you when you went to prison? By that time, I was... 23 years old. You had a, a parents? Yes. Siblings, brothers, sisters? Yes. Yeah, you had to say goodbye to everyone. You kept protesting your innocence, and probably people thought, ah, he's, he's as guilty as anything. And it's hard, obviously, to try and explain to people how innocent you were when there's another accused in the same trial that says you were there, you're guilty. Yes, it was hard to... to, to to prove that uh, I'm innocent because there was someone who is talking that uh, I'm the one who committed the murder and then I didn't commit the murder. I don't know how it comes. But then... As the, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. As, the, as the investigating officer, they were against us. That's why it, it ends up... Uh, they found us guilty. You appeared before a single judge, one judge, in uh, Muffa King, Northwest, and uh, she didn't believe your story that you were... Did you say you weren't there, or did you say you were there? I'm just not sure of the facts. Uh, what, what did you say in court? No, in court I've explained that I, I don't know nothing about the matter. And then mm. Even the place where the guy was shooting, I don't know the place. Yes. Then they didn't believe and they didn't even want to take my story. The the prosecution relied on a statement which was made by your co-accused, one of the co-accused, there were eight or nine of you, one of them who said you were there. And that's what you were fighting against and that's what we're going to be talking about. It's called an extracurial statement that somebody points out and says, I know he was there, I was with him. Yes, sir. And that's all you, that's what you had to fight against. Yes. Sir. Hard one, that, isn't it? Because yes. the court looks at the two of you and says, well, I don't know, maybe you were there. And I'm going to find you were there because somebody says you were there. Yes, sir. Yeah. What about you, Victor? How did you feel the day you had to walk down those concrete steps into a prison cell and know that you've got a life sentence for something you never did? It's, an, it's heartbreaking. 
Mm. For me, it was bad. I wasn't feeling well because, you know, I'm a person who always uh, hide how I feel. I don't want people to see how I feel in most cases. Uh, I was feeling for my mom and my son. I asked myself a lot of questions, what is going to happen about them because they were depending on me with everything. Did you, what age were you at the time? At that time I was 21. And you had a child of what age? Uh, he was only a few months by then. He was born on the 16th of May. I was arrested while his mother was pregnant. Mm. Yes. You, who, who took care of him when you were sent into prison? Mm, some of the family from her mother's side. Mm. And I think the child grand support. Did you ever get to see your child for all those years in prison? Yes, I did sometimes. Not often? Yes, not often, because they used to bring him um, once a month or after two months. I read, and, and Carolyn wrote this and extremely well as well, she said, when the men arrived at Josi Mampuru C-Max after sentencing, they claimed they were forced to strip naked, they were assaulted, shocked, with the electric shock shields and tortured for no apparent reason in front of female warders. Do you remember those wicked days or that, that wicked day? Yes, I still remember those things because I think it's their strategy. They use that to, to, to maybe to make uh, inmate think that the place is different compared to the to place the outside they come. World. Yes, because when we get there, we were told to, 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 to strip naked. Then after that, they gave us underwear and overall. Then after that, um, three, three, three guys came uh, wearing shield. Then that's where they started to torture us and choke us. I know you were transferred to Kokstad's C-Max prison as well Designed to to house I think The most dangerous criminals And there again you were assaulted and tortured I mean you were only You were young boys You were 20 20, in your 20s Uh, There were some hardened criminals there I mean I don't even want to go into any detail As to your safety But it couldn't have been easy for 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 non-criminals really You were simple guys that Just everyday South Africans You didn't deserve to be in the company of Of that lot Sampi, how was it there for you? It was painful and I can't even forget everything that had happened in 2004, 2003. Yes, we were still young. The man that accused you of, of being part of the, of the crime, did he go to the same prison or did they split you? How did it work? No, we were in the same prison. You had to see him every day. You had to look at him and say, you're the man that got me here. Each and, every day, each and every day when we wake up, we were together. Mm. We were seeing each other. When we go to shower, looking to the guy, I was crying inside, asking myself, 
some questions that I can't get some answers. Then I even asked the guy one of the good days, but why? Then he said, no. He was told by the officers to do whatever he he have done. The police that were investigating yes. told him just... You know, they probably gave him uh, what? Did, did, they, did they torture him to, to get this information out of, out uh, of him? What did he tell you they did? He told me that the, he was instructed by the investigating officers. To implicate? To talk about us. To talk everything that he was talking in court. Yeah. Then I asked him that, why you didn't tell the truth? Mm. He said, no. They promised me to to get the freedom. I said, now where you are now? Because we are together here. Mm. Then somewhere, somehow, we didn't see things the same. You made up your mind from the word go that you were going to try and get out of prison. You were there wrongly. What did you do from day one? I mean, what does one do? Did you have any, you, you had no money really to to get an attorney to try and get an appeal going? What, what did you do? Uh, I spoke to my some of my families, even though they didn't believe that uh, I'm innocent. It wasn't easy because uh, the way they've planned the, the matter, everybody was 100% sure that uh, I've done this. Even my father... My mom, my brother, some of the relatives, they didn't believe when I tell them that uh, I, I, I don't know, I don't even know the, the place of the disease. Mm. Uh, I've told myself that no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make an appeal. We'll look, the the legal aid will help us, but then they didn't. Because they were taking us pillar to post, telling us a lot of stories. There's no court record. Uh, and we can't make an appeal without the court record. They're telling us now that this key, they can't hear clearly. Well, we all know that you can't go on appeal without the record, because that's what the court, the appeal court looks at. It doesn't look at new evidence unless there is additional new evidence, but it looks at the record of what transpired and without the record you can't get anywhere so legal aid said they can't find the record or who knows more about this carolyn i know you've been involved in trying to get records out of someone um, uh, how does it work tambakila was the driving force i think in trying to get the le- the record obtain the records tell which, us who tambakila is tambakila molatsi is was accused number 5 in this case mm. Um, he, n- none of the men had their records. They were unable to obtain them for eight years. And um, in the eighth year, Tembekila's warder, a man called Le- Levi Mapakani, called mm-hmm. me and he said, I believe that this man is innocent. Can you help him? And basically... It wasn't, I, I agreed to get involved in this case, not because of the fact of whether Tembekila was innocent or guilty, but because it's a constitutional right for 
somebody to be able to, for anyone to be able to appeal their case. And they, these men, well, Tembekila at that stage was unable to obtain his records and couldn't appeal his case. I know, I think that the first legal aid, um, lawyer who represented him and had the record said that his office had burnt down in a fire and he'd lost everything else. Then they tried, then another legal aid lawyer tried to get the records for him and then I think um, he was unsuccessful. May, then, may I interrupt you a sec? To get a copy of the record, if you're indigent and you're languishing in prison, do you have to pay for it or does the state... Every indigent person yeah. is entitled to their records at state expense. Yeah. So why? I but mean, what in the end, yeah. um, three of them banded together. Three indigent men had to raise um, 18,000 rand between them. From Their families had to raise, and they had to actually pay a private lawyer to obtain the records. And when they did get those records back, a third of them were miss. A third of the record was missing, including the most crucial part. What did Legal Aid do to assist them, if anything? Why why didn't they get the record from Legal Aid through Legal Aid? Well, the first Legal Aid lawyer, as far as I know, had the records, but he, mm. he claimed that his office had burnt down and he lost the records. The mm. second Legal Aid lawyer who who got the records, which took a very long time, the records that were given to him, a third was missing, as I, uh, as I mentioned. I mean, the fact is that it's taken these people years and years and years to get a record to go on appeal, and they've now succeeded. They're now innocent. If they'd got the record a week after the sentence, they would have been free years and years ago. They would have sat maximum a few months. So the... The problem here appears to be the failure to obtain the record. and we Missing can... transcripts are a, a, a real big problem. Um, so I got involved, as I mm. said, when the warder called me and asked me to help. And I said I would get involved. Initially, I said I would try to help them obtain their records. Yes. And that was how I got involved, or help Tembekila, to be precise. When we talk the, the record, record just to... The trial transcript. The, the, yeah, the trial transcript. Yeah, okay. Now, that's every trial is recorded, and the transcript is kept and should be available for a judge or for anyone. Theoretically, yes. but there is a there appears to be a problem in this area. There are many people who we don't, we only have anecdotal evidence mm. uh, of this, but from the letters that the Justice Project receives, there are many people who are unable to access their records, and that is a problem. Mm. Okay. Uh, eventually, the families of the prisoners got together and they paid to get the record. Well, those, Why record, was, yeah. those records that they paid for, yes. for were also incomplete. And that it was after that that they approached me for help. Did you ever get a complete record? Yes, we did. And how did you how did you manage to do it? But they couldn't do it, or the legal aid couldn't do it. Well, I think I spent, if I recall, um, about two months trying to get it through through various channels. I was unsuccessful, mm. and finally, I contacted Jakob van Gaderen. Um, who heads laws for human rights, and he put a paralegal onto the case. And actually, the paralegal persuaded um, 
Justice Monica Liu, who originally convicted them, mm. to give them the records. And once again, we got he got the the records in I think three days or something, and they were also incomplete. The the crucial bits were missing, and then I think at the behest of lawyers for human rights. Uh, Justice Liu finally agreed to retranscribe them, and I think that took another 10 days or two weeks. And then they were finally, eight years later, in a position to appeal their case. Let, let me just uh, bring Egan in on this one. Egan, as a, as a human rights lawyer, where is where should the transcription, I don't know if you know it offhand, where is it kept? The trial is finished. It's all transcribed. It's all on tape. Where Where, where is this stuff? Well, there's a company that's specifically uh, um, co-opted onto the system to actually make sure that they transcribe the records. So Mm. in every court, there's a machinist um, who takes care of the transcription process and um, makes sure that that record is made, and then it's electronically preserved. By the company that's getting paid to do that? That's correct, yes. The whole thing is, is, is an absolute mess to wait for years and years to get your, your court transcription. It's crazy. When things go wrong, it's, it's, it's highly problematic. Um, it's very difficult to resolve those issues. So eventually, Carolyn, you got the record. Uh, Tembekila got it, and he was one of the other accused. Yeah, but obviously the record was the same for all of them. Yeah. So it meant that the seven men were now in a position to appeal their case, which they, which I think took about six months. Did all appeal or only some appeal? They all appealed. All appealed. Yeah. And what's happened? And the, the, yeah. the, the, their appeal was dismissed by a full bench of the Northwest High Court. All the gents up front initially, yes. Mm. That included, yeah, okay. Timber Keeler is the fir- who was the first to go to, to get his exoneration? Um, Boswell, Mushlonger, and Discone and Corsi. Timber Keeler's case was actually. Based on theirs. Yes, Tembekila had gone to the um, Constitutional Court prior to them, yes. and his appeal was also dismissed by the Constitutional Court on the grounds um, that it wasn't the appeal wasn't based on a constitutional principle, mm-hmm. and also that there was no reasonable prospect of success. Mm-hmm. So his case was dismissed, and then Boswell. And Disco appealed their cases, and their appeal was upheld. And I think through serendipity or the finger of God or whatever you want to call it, Tembekila, as a result of that case, actually Tembekila made legal history because he was able to appeal his case after theirs, after they were their convictions were overturned, and... Um, it happened to be raised judicata, which meant the Constitutional Court wasn't actually supposed to hear the same case twice. And yes. he made legal history yes. because that's what actually happened. Mm. And then his conviction was also overturned. Timbekila obtained his release about two years ago, is it? I or think it was in, at the end of June 2015, yeah. almost two years ago. And you were instrumental in assisting as well. That particular case, and I know that we've done a we've done an interview with yourself and Tembekile. It's on podcast. It does go back considerably. Um, what, do you remember more or less when it was? It must have been in July of that year, shortly after his release. Now the two gents in studios, 
uh, how did it come about that they got hold of you as well? Well, to be honest, when Tembekilo told me that there were two other men, two of his co-accused still behind bars, who had also been wrongfully convicted, I didn't take him that seriously. Um, but And they went ahead on their own, mm-hmm. and their appeal was framed or lodged by a, a fellow inmate who was studying law behind bars. Um, and the Constitutional Court um, asked the Johannesburg Bar Council to appoint a an advocate to represent them on a pro, pro bono basis. Mm-hmm. Um, Tembekile had helped them a lot with their appeal. Mm. Don't you? You should <laughs> say you should describe the process. Mm. After 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 Tembekile took our papers to Constitutional Court, they appointed uh, Miss Manak. But I don't know her. The person who knows Miss Manaka by telephone is Sampi. I only heard by, uh, about Miss Manaka. She is an advocate practicing at the bar in Johannesburg. Advocate Manaka, yes. And she was appointed by the... Uh, the, the Constitutional Court asked the Bar Council the bar to council. appoint an advocate to act pro bono for them. Did she ever come out and see you? No. You, you never met her? Yes. No. She she was given the record? Mm, about Miss Managa, I know nothing because uh, I started to, to, to know everything uh, about Miss Managa by the time I was talking to Tembegile on the phone. Tembegile told me that Miss Managa has already filed the head of argument to constitutional court. You must be very excited about this. You now had a counsel from the an advocate from the Johannesburg Bar who was going to represent you at the Constitutional Court. Marvellous. The only problem was that uh, things went a bit wrong there. Um, do you know what went wrong? Or I think Egan may know. Egan, do you want to just tell us what what went wrong with those papers? Um, yeah, I can't go into too much detail with regard to that because it's the subject matter of a disciplinary inquiry that we filed with the Johannesburg Society of Advocates. Um, but essentially what happened was that um, there were concerns uh, expressed um, with regard to whether the the heads actually adequately set out the arguments with regard to the gentleman. In fact, with regard to Mr. Moyer, there the, the actually were no heads. Um, so I had a look at that and, 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 um, there were some concerns just on a straight reading of the document that perhaps it wasn't, um, uh, fit for purpose. Mm. Um, and then, of course, um, I embarked on a process of looking at the law and studying the law and all the cases, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, after consulting with my clients, um, it became clear that there were some, uh, major technical deficiencies in the documentation. Mm-hmm. And that started a whole process. The papers that uh, she had filed were withdrawn or were they left? What happened to them? No, once they filed, they're part of the court record. Um, We eventually um, asked special leave. In fact, it's unprecedented um, to file replacement heads, which fortunately Mm. the constitutional court allowed. Really? Mm. Yeah. What excuse? How did you explain it to the court? Did you say they were wrong, factually and and legally wrong? Yes. That's basically. Did you, what you said. Yeah, you you sent it by by in, in written form. You didn't address the court. 
we addressed a letter to the registrar. Yes. And um, he dealt with it. In fact, I must say the Constitutional Court is, is, is a very efficient mm, uh, setup. Yeah, yeah. So it, it actually works quite well and it's very accessible. Mm. Um, so the people are friendly, they're accommodating and, and they provide So assistance. they replied immediately saying, fine, we're going to, what, ignore those heads and we'll rely on the heads of argument that you prepared Well, kind of thing. Basically what happened was that we said that we'd had a look at what was on record, and I felt that that was insufficient. I advised them that I did now apply to the um, Johannesburg Bar to get uh, fresh counsel appointed, yeah. um, and I said that my provisional view of the matter is that we're going to have to uh, make uh, at least very substantial amendments to it. Um, in the course of that process, the Johannesburg Bar Council, again, actually very quickly, um, gave us um, substituted advocates, uh, and uh, the lead advocate in that matter was Carol Steinberg. Mm-hmm. And um, as soon as she was appointed, I, I put together a brief with all the relevant information, sent it through to her, and she very promptly um, generated draft heads. And on the basis of that, it became very clear that that the line of argument that we were going to take was uh, sub- substantially different. How how many pages is the record that everyone had to read, and the court had to read as well? Well, that was. Part of yeah. the big problem it was over a thousand pages and Jeez. a very difficult record to go through. Was it all in English? All in English. So you had to read a thousand pages and then put, put together an argument, and the court had to do the, had to read it and understand your argument. Yes. Now your argument, and I think you've got to give credit to your new advocate, who's Carol Steinberg. Um, the argument that went to the constitutional court is what. Um, yeah, look, the, the, the top end intellectual input there correctly comes from Carol Steinberg, and she did brilliant work on it. Um, but essentially, basically, um, we narrowed the issues down to the one major issue that was basically determined by the court in the Boswell and Disco case, and that was really that extracurial statements are inadmissible against co-accused, and then we looked at what evidence was left after that, and we excluded that evidence on the basis of its probability of, of, um, uh, finding a conviction. And on the Let basis of those arguments, we were able to say to the court, look, there really is no basis. Take away the extracurial statements. There's no basis for a conviction. Now. Okay. In a nutshell, what is an extracurial statement? Well, there's a whole lot of different species of it, and we could go on it for a while. But, but for this, in this particular yeah. case? In the context of this particular case, it was a statement that was made uh, in the presence of a police officer. So one of the accused, I think it's accused number one, made a statement to the police saying, these two gents in studio were involved accomplices in the murder and the robbery and all the rest. Is that what the extracurial statement is? That's what it was. Now, aside from that, the police didn't have too much or didn't have anything or whatever. They didn't have enough to convict. No, they basically put all the eggs in one basket. And they said we're relying on this statement. Yes. In other words, let's just take in another example. There's been a, a massive heist at the airport, and I read according to reports there were many people involved, and I think they arrested two or three, assuming that they arrest one of the guys, and he says, hey, Egan Oswald, he was with me that day when we committed the, the theft. That's what, and he makes a written statement or a statement to the police, that's what you call an extracurial statement. Yeah. Now, how do you expect the police to investigate a crime if they cannot rely on the evidence, or can they rely on the statement, but it cannot be used on its own? Is that what you're trying to say? So there's got to be more. Yeah, generally speaking, there has to be more. 
um, at the end of the day, uh, you know, the police, um, their job is to investigate matters. Now, one of the inherent problems with regard to extracurricular statements is that because of the context in which they are taken, um, the person who gives a statement is in a, quite a vulnerable position. Mm-hmm. So we very often hear um, concomitant with these statements as the person will come back and say later on, well, I was tortured, I was beaten, I was induced to say this, I was offered a reward, etc., etc., etc. So it's that whole process which is quite fraught. So essentially what happens is um, where we get a um, an incapacitated police force, sometimes the easiest and best way to get the answers to take an extracurricular statement, hold that up as the civil, bu- uh, civil bullet and drive that through the whole process, which is really what happened here. Sumpy says that, uh, I think he said it earlier, that the police had promised accused number one his freedom if he, if I may use the word, fingered others and brought uh, others into the, into the picture. And I think that's what you're trying to say. That evidence on its own is insufficient. You can't simply say, I was there with, and you point out another five or six or whatever it may be. You cannot do that. It's a, you can, but the court won't accept it. Well, you're entirely correct there. Basically, at the end of the day, what should happen is that if they get evidence of this nature, um, they can use that to launch further investigations, so forensic evidence, other witness statements, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, when you think about it, all the police do have really is if if there are many people involved in a crime, all they have is maybe one or two they've arrested. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to, to, to net everyone. And the only way to do it is to ask the people they've arrested, hey, who are you with? And then the guy say, I was with Egan Oswald. And Egan Oswald says, but I wasn't there. What the police should do is investigate more. You can't just say, well, thank you for that statement. I'm going to arrest Egan, and that's all I have. You've got to go to Egan. You've got to search him. You've got to do forensic stuff. You've got to, you've got to investigate it properly and find additional evidence in order to secure a conviction against him. That would, be, right? enti- that would yeah. be entirely correct, yes. So what happened here was these two gentlemen were – sent away for 14 years or so to prison on the statement of, of a murderer, really. Am I, am, I, am I seeing it right? Well, he might not even have been the murderer. He might not even have been a murderer. Mm. It was just on the basis of a statement that somebody made. But that particular person was the, was the weak link in the chain. Um, he broke and he said what he said for whatever reasons he said it for. Why did the trial court not deal with this in the same way that the Constitutional Court did and say, well, all I have is extracurial evidence in the form of a statement. I cannot convict these people. Well, that was quite an interesting process that took place there. Um, Essentially what happened was that in the common law, let's go back into the day, um, there was a a fairly rigid principle that said that extracurial statements of an accused person cannot be used in criminal proceedings against another co-accused. So that disbarred that evidence. And, of course, we've learned now that there are very good reasons for that particular principle, and essentially it goes down to the security and cogency of the evidence that's elicited in that particular format. Um, uh, And then we went through a process where um, that that um, principle was diluted in the common law and eventually the Supreme Court of Appeal in the Glover case actually came out and, and said as a dictum, provided that we can show um, that adequate safeguards have been taken um, that this evidence is reliable, we can use it. Mm-hmm. And so there was a, there was a detour um, in the purity of our law, for want of a better way, that was taken when that happened. 
Um, and that was the law that was in play at the time that these poor gentlemen were in court. So um, that was the accepted uh, form of legal thinking at the time, um, and that was what was applied, and that's how they were convicted, and that's why they were unsuccessful on appeal. The Constitutional Court has now ruled that extracurial evidence uh, by one accused against another is cannot be used. Is, is that the bottom line? That's the bottom so line. So that's good law. That's marvelous. And this is what will stand in future. So if the police, not suggesting they do, but if they did torture someone and say, hey, if you don't tell me who you were with, I'm going to squeeze your balls with a nutcracker, um, whatever, you know, even if he tells them, it's not going to help them. Well, this was really the, the, the attraction of the case for me because that's my area of speciality is, is where people use torture and violence uh, um, to get a certain result. Um, unfortunately, because of the mechanics of the way that um, the case was set out, we weren't able to go too deeply into that. But I have no doubt that that was the fundamental um, chink in the armor where things went wrong right in the beginning. The tragedy of all this is that these poor people had to sit for so many years because of the malfunction within the court system. That's really what it is. Because the law is great. I mean, we've got, a, we've got the result we want. But just to get a court record, I mean, can you believe it, Carolyn? It's like, it's heartbreaking. It really is in our, in our, in our modern country to have this kind of nonsense. You're, you're quite right. It is very heartbreaking. But actually, it, it's a whole, it's systemic um, dysfunctionality of the criminal justice system, which actually started with a bungled police investigation. So it didn't actually start in the courts. It was a bungled police investigation. Then these men were betrayed by the courts. Then they were let down by legal aid. Then they were let down by an advocate appointed by the court. It's disgraceful. So it's, no. it's, it's a whole series of betrayals and letdowns. The question that everyone wants to know, Egan, and I'm going to throw it at you, these gentlemen who served so many years in prison for a crime they never committed they're now exonerated. They're now released. Are they entitled to any form of compensation from the state? Well, the short answer to that is no. We don't have any particular provision that allows exonerees um, to claim compensation from the state. Um, it's quite an interesting sort of field. And um, at the end of the day, this particular problem occurs internationally in all sorts of jurisdictions. Um, we are a member of uh, or, or signatory to quite an important treaty called the International Convention on Civil and Political Rights. Um, it's a UN treaty, and that treaty says that um, member states should endeavor to put into place some form of compensation scheme for exonerees, mm-hmm. subject to certain uh, parameters. Um, in Canada, they've got a system in place, and their system is, is sort of quite an interesting one. But it basically boils down to um, the fact that you're an exoneree won't be sufficient to get compensation there. You'd actually have to show that you didn't commit the crime. Um, so that's how they deal with it. And the, in the United States, on the basis of the innocence projects that have that have mushroomed in, in the various different states there, there's been a lot of impetus um, in terms of putting into place uh, schemes at the state level. Um, and uh, various different states have different sort of um, provisions. One of the states I know has got a, uh, well, there's a recommendation uh, from the Innocence Project to the effect that they get $50,000 compensation each year spent in jail and then a whole lot of other um, assistive 
um, measures should be put in place to assist them to recover psychological services, medical aid, etc., etc., etc. Let's talk about uh, for a moment if somebody lays a malicious charge against you. It often happens in an acrimonious divorce. The wife says, my husband beats me up. The man gets arrested, gets locked up. He gets released or he's found not guilty and he never beat her up. Would he have a claim against her? The same with a business partner who lays a, a spurious claim against his partner because he wants him out the business, whatever. And he also gets arrested and discharged. What claims, if any, are there? If malice, it's malicious, yeah. Malice is the magic word there. Malice does unlock um, a, a um, delictual action against uh, the person who maliciously uh, laid the charges. Um, but it's a very, very difficult horse to ride, that one. Um, but there are cases where, where, where people have succe- uh, succeeded. Um, yeah, I've often advised clients to be very careful before they lay a charge, proffer a charge, because, uh, you know, if, it's, if it is slightly malicious, you could get sued. You've got to be careful on that one. Maybe not so slightly malicious. I, I think probably More. malicious. Yeah. More malicious. <laughs> yeah, no, it has to be properly malicious. The tragedy all here is that our guests in studio have been cast aside. They walk away with no apology, no compensation, no support from the government, and nothing to rebuild their lives. Gents, what happens to you now 14 years later? How do you function? What is the first, what are you doing? How do you get a job? And how do you tell people that you apply to? I was in jail for 14 years. I've got no CV, but I was found not guilty at the end. Aish. It is an Aish. No, <laughs> no it's hard because many people, they don't believe. Some of the people, when they see me outside, they think that I've escaped. As they were knowing that uh, I was saving life sentence, uh, there was no one who's thinking that uh, they're gonna see me again. I see you have some scars on your face. Is that from from being in jail? Were you in fights? And no, things? it's before I went in oh. jail. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Were you hurt in jail? No. You had people looking after you. Uh, your your friend here, Mr. Moya, is quite a big man. I think he may have looked after you. <laughs> so, getting a job, or you're going to try and start a business? How do you how do you survive in this tough world? What's going to happen to you guys, Victor? Mm. Um, I'm planning to 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 survive by working with my half brother. He has a scrap yard where I'm going to help him again to fix cars, panel beat cars. That's how I'm going to survive. The accused that made the statement that uh, you were there at the time, uh, where's he now? He is still there in Koshimamburu. You said, and I read Carolyn wrote about it, you said the first person when the day you were released, you said... I want to convey the news myself to the uh, the head of uh, Hossi, was it Hossi Mampuru? Yes, Hossi Mampuru. Did you uh, because he never believed that you were innocent? Obviously, everyone cries they're innocent in jail. I mean, we know that. So, did you go to him and convey the news to him? Oh, say, they didn't want they didn't want to take me into his office. Uh-huh. I remember. I don't know what was the date, uh, but there's a. I don't know how can I say it's a program or whatever they call it the VOD victim offender dialogue so it comes to a point 
They said, uh, am I ready to meet the victims, to go and tell the truth about what had happened? Mm-hmm. Then I said, okay. Only if we will meet and talk the truth. I think they are the ones that they should tell the truth before I can tell the truth because they know what had happened mm-hmm. as they were instructed to do whatever they have done and then the head of prison said no okay you'll get a chance to meet them but please you must watch your mouth don't forget that uh, they are head and then there's no the daughter of the disease if you will speak like uh, the way you want that pain will come back again then I didn't want to exchange some words with uh, with the head of the prison then I said no sir uh, I would like to meet the, the victims then they make an appointment one day they come to me in the morning they said no the victim gonna be here uh, soon around 10 o'clock I said okay thanks I've told myself that no, this is the chance and the opportunity to let the Wadas know everything had happened in 2003 and 2004 before I was sentenced. Then we went to the VOD program. When we arrived there, uh, I meet the daughter of the disease and, uh, and, and the wife of the disease. While we were speaking, uh, they asked me that, why did, you, did I kill the, 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 the father of the child? Then I said, no, I think the, uh, this daughter should tell the truth before I can talk. Because she knows deep inside that she was instructed by the uh, investigating officer to come and talk whatever she was telling in court. Mm-hmm. Then there were uh, there were there were some of the uh, prison warders, the chairperson of the uh, parole board, and the religious. Sampi, I'm going to have to ask you just to speed it up because we're running out of time. I still got a lot to cover. Okay, sir. So the bottom line is what happened at the end. No, Mr. Taylor told me that uh, I was crying when I was speaking to the daughter. Mm. And the wife of the disease, he said to me, my tears, the, my crocodile tears, they can't give the victim any, the closure. Any, yeah. So he said, I'm a liar. Mm. I've committed the matter. So when you were exonerated by the Constitutional Court, he's the very man you went to. Yes, I, I've, oh. asked, I've asked some of the members to take me to the office, and then they denied. They said, no, they can't take me so to you the went, office. So you didn't get the, the joy of telling him, listen, yeah, I've yeah, been yeah, exonerated. Yes, yes sir. Is there someone that you really want to thank for getting your release? I always say thanks to Mr. Egon and Miss Caroline, because if it wasn't Miss Caroline and Mr. Egon, even now... Ish. There's some guardian angels, beautiful people in this world that do good work. And if it wasn't for them, you'd still be there and you'd be there for the rest of your life. 
Yes, sir. We'd like to thank the Vitz Justice Project uh, very much. Carolyn is marvelous. She does some good stuff. Uh, she really, this is, this is her passion. It's her life to help people like yourselves. If you feel that there's any torture or abuse within prisons, anyone listening, and if, if this podcast goes out to the prisons, please uh, contact Vitz Justice Project. Uh, they will help you, definitely. If you feel you've been wrongfully committed, please also contact them. If there's any matter that you want to alert them to, they're there for you, Vitz Justice Project. If you're an inmate or a family of the inmates and you want to access any of your rights and the rights here, uh, you want to know about DNA, you want to know about how to obtain transcripts from the court, uh, you want to know how to get a lawyer, it's on the website of Vitz Justice Project. It's all there for you. Do you have access to the internet in prisons? Is it there? No, they don't allow you. They only use the internet for for registering at UNISA or... Spread or the word. There are these people that really do wonderful work. Vitz Justice Project, the DNA, uh, not the DNA, the Innocence Project in uh, the US is somewhere you've been, Carolyn, and uh, I think you're... A, you're a you're a great supporter of theirs, aren't you? Um, there are about seventy or eighty innocence projects in America. They okay. were started. They were first established to try and get people off death row using DNA evidence. Mm. Um, our project's based on the Medill Justice Project. It's a journalism justice project, and there are only about six uh, journalism justice projects. And obviously South Africa doesn't have the death sentence, so our project is functions a bit differently, but we are definitely inspired by the U.S. Innocence Projects. Is there anyone you'd like to thank for helping do this, put this together, and generally what they do for the project and for the people in studio? Uh, in South Africa? Yeah, anyone. Well... Egon is the most feisty, determined lawyer I've ever met. He's been acting pro bono for the survivors of the St. Albans torture case mm. for 11 years. Um, Carol Steinberg is an extraordinary advocate, and these guys would definitely still be behind bars if it wasn't for her. Mm. And um, I think I've been very, very privileged to, to work for the Witz Justice Project um, and in the Witz School of Journalism and um, Anton Haber, who, whose um, baby it was, actually, has given me an amazing opportunity to, to a journalistic opportunity and the privilege of sometimes being able to assist people behind bars. I just want to add in here what a fascinating, enthralling story this is. And they say every cloud has a silver lining. Obviously, now when Egon explained that now when someone goes against your word, against their word, the court does something. So these men are now obviously free, um, but I'm saying it won't happen again to other people. And that's why this is truly fascinating. Good. Uh, we have to go. So God bless to all of you. Many thanks to our guest today. And uh, we'll see you again. Thanks for this. Bye-bye. Law. Like you've never heard it before. The Laws of Life. With Gary Hertzberg on cliffcentral.com. Cliffcentral.com.